0: All right, this is Finchley Place. I'm Crispy Chicken. We have suspended reason, as usual. And we have Amir, known by many names, such as at Amirism, underscore, Amir of Amirs, and mer. We're here to talk about being public in private, i.e. the way that the way we think and the way we communicate has kind of gotten intertwined. I mean, it's always been intertwined, but especially so as we kind of constantly feel the need to present ourselves and explain ourselves. Um, I'm just going to start with a um little tweet that uh amir wrote which goes like this the thing about engaging with twitter as a public commons integrated into your brain i.e twitter brain is that in exchange for a vibrant public life it eats up into your private inner life of the mind the next tweet which i think is like equally important so I'll just read it is among other things the inner life is a space where there are no incentives to legalize everything and think thoughts into words It's very quiet there. In a noisy world, I learned that this is precious. And I find that quite interesting because I guess for me, I'm someone who, uh, I guess, I feel like early in my life, I lived a lot in my inner world um, and I felt the need to verbalize because I had trouble communicating with people um, and I didn't tend to have a lot of close friends when I was a kid. And because of that, I think I've personally come to think very, very verbally. So... For me, when I talk to people and they're like, yeah, I, I don't, I, I, I've I, never really even thought about this core part of myself in words. That's like crazy to me. Um, but I guess it's interesting because I do notice what you're saying in two ways. I notice it in other people, in other people, for instance, who become online, who I see become online, changing the way they think about things and actually making it much more difficult for them to think about certain things, which, you know, are not very easily amenable to legibilizing, at least with the tools that they've been given initially. Um, And number two, I see it in myself um, when I'm trying to context switch between groups that certain thoughts get you know, kind of um, discontinued <laughs> because it's just too difficult to try to kind of deal with, that, deal with that. And that when I go into my private mode after one of these, right, I kind of remain in the mode of my most recent group most often. And then I kind of notice um, what you're talking about more. But I think all in all, I-, I tend to think so verbally that this is not as much the experience I have. So I'm curious if that resonates to you, if you think I've, if I think I've caught it and where you want to go with that.
1: Right. So I think most people probably don't really take note of uh, whether or not the way they think is verbal or nonverbal. They probably have some mixture of both that they get used to and that they learn over their lives. Uh, For me, uh, this became particularly uh, noticeable when I started using Twitter, which, by the way, I am relatively new to Twitter and to social media. I would suppose I started using Twitter uh, around the beginning of last year because of the pandemic. And, be- and before that, for around four years, I've been almost completely offline. So uh, I had some uh, opportunity to notice the way that uh, my state of mind started changing as I started using Twitter. And... Um, Also how it started changing again when I went on this Twitter break for around a month uh, during June. Um, Well, the first uh, thing is that, you know, there's this uh, what many call Twitter brain, which is the tendency for, uh, for you to think of things that could become good tweets or like, you look at something and think, oh, you know what? That could be a good tweet. And you start drafting the tweet in your mind and start revising it and, and going through these uh, cycles of, of, of getting back to the same thoughts. Um, I had this pretty often at, at one point. And another part of it was that I felt really connected with the, um, I guess you could say the the collective mind. Or you know the everyone else that's on Twitter and 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 uh, transmitting their thoughts into the into this space. So uh, it came to a point where I would be uh, not on Twitter. I would be doing something else, and I would come across a thought or an idea or something, and I would think about it. And any time I think about it, I would be in some way drafting a thread or, or, or legibilizing these thoughts into a way that they can be transmitted to other people. So I would uh, have it in the back of my mind and then I would log on. And this happened uh, multiple times. It happened a bunch of times that it was a bit creepy. So what would happen is I would log in and I would see someone already talking about it. I would see someone on Twitter that would already have a thread from a few hours ago and they would be talking about basically the same thing. And uh, this sort of uh, creeped me out because like, it felt like everything that I was thinking can be traced to the collective and that uh, everything I put out, you know, feedback into the machine, so to speak. And so uh, I sort of, uh, lost track of which thoughts were mine and which thoughts were the, those of Twitter, you know. And and, and um, I guess this is sort of exacerbated by the fact that I've been completely, almost completely free of other stuff in my life uh, throughout the past six months or so. Um, I just finished school. And uh, so I've, I've pretty much had nothing to do uh, before starting my new job. So I've just been waking up and going on Twitter and tweeting a bunch of stuff and then uh, going to bed. And Twitter has been a major part of my life. And because of that, it's been um, embedded into the way I think and into the thoughts that I think. And it started getting a bit uncomfortable for me, which is why uh, I did the break. By the way, I forgot what your question was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it, it hardly matters, because that was a great answer. <laughs> uh, I, I basically asked you where you wanted to go with it, and, and you went there. So that, that's great. For new mm-hmm. listeners, and for you, me and um, uh, Spendit have basically been pushing forward this kind of new idea that, well, not that new, but that we we're kind of re forward that mm-hmm. games should be the central metaphor for understanding communication and strategy. Um And this is a metaphor I've seen you use a number of times um, before on Twitter. And I think one thing that's really interesting to think about is you talk about this machine, feeding the machine, being fed by the machine. Um, And I think it's interesting to think about, though, what is this machine total optimizing for? And what are you forced to optimize as someone who's part of it? Um, And I think this... One thing that I'll say there is I think it's really quite complicated to say this because it's pretty clear there's no overarching goal of Twitter that it does or even can impose. I mean, you could say kind of vague things like engagement. But the thing that's interesting about engagement is we are in a particular kind of Twitter circle, right? Um, And I think that Twitter circle redefines what engagement is because we don't expect engagement from a lot of other people in different Twitter circles. And indeed, a lot of people delete um tweets that get too popular in other circles because they really think like, the point is kind of almost maintained in group right um and so the question is in this kind of scenario how do things come to be part of the optimization process and i think the other kind of element of that is like obviously that there's cycles of fashion um and that seems to be because these optimization um goals can be saturated and somehow become uninteresting um so yeah anything you want to throw out about like what we end up optimizing for, given that there's kind of this perception that we know we are optimizing for something, how can we kind of get at what that thing is?
1: Right. Um, it's possible that I can't pin down exactly what the thing is that's being optimized, but I could talk about, you know, my personal experience with it. Um, I noticed that uh, the way that I tweet has has changed uh, significantly, probably since... Around June or August of last year, ever since I found the, you know, the space that we are in. Um, and I felt very much, uh, the sense that I was entering a certain territory that had certain rules that I had to follow and that these rules were not the rules of the place that I was originally located. I mean, when I started using Twitter, um, I didn't have a, specific purpose for it basically i was just bored and some of my friends uh, convinced me to use twitter and they're not you know from our in group so at first i just started following a bunch of uh, uh media accounts and and public figures and stuff like that and i had a timeline that was really noisy and not very interesting and very tiresome um but i tried to at least at the at the beginning i tried to uh, play along I would, uh, try to write opinions about politics because that seemed like the thing that everyone else was doing. Um, I was trying to follow the rules. So, um, I don't know how much this, uh, how, how relevant this is, but, um, I have a thing where, or at least the way that I characterize it is I have a thing where I can't pick up on rules in a tacit way or in a way that, um, doesn't need conscious, uh, um, you know, I have to pick up on rules very consciously. So this started back when I was, uh, really young. And I just noticed it recently, you know, when I had, uh, just a few hours ago when I was on that, when I was on this, uh, uh, social event with, with colleagues and everyone was really nice, right? and i had the impression that like oh so it seems like most adults are really nice and that's weird because when i was a kid i had the impression that most kids are really mean right i used to be bullied a lot so it seemed like oh uh, apparently when you grow up uh, you you become really nice and most people you know figure out how to be nice as they grow up but the more i thought about it uh, the more that i disagreed with this uh, with this interpretation and I think it's just, it's not really that, you know, people grow up and become really nice, but more that I've learned to play the game, uh, in a better way than I was, uh, than when I was a kid, right? So when I was really young, I got bullied a lot because I, uh, was really incompetent at picking up on these uh, implicit rules and following, um, uh, social cues and, and, and saying what people want you to say and stuff like that. So, you know, I became an easy target for bullying, which, you know, I don't, uh, think is my fault entirely, but it's something that I learned from and something that I, uh, used as, as a, as a way of, uh, learning what people want. So as I grew up, I started uh, picking up on these rules and making them very explicit, at least for me in my mind, right? So I would, I would, uh, figure them out, and I would try to follow them. And when I followed them, I would see how people would respond. And it turns out that if you if you were correct about the rules, then people would respond very well, right? So this was basically how I approached Twitter. Uh, I started following everyone else and doing these politics takes and just reading all these tiresome news. At one point, I found the in-group or whatever you want to call it, our space of, of activity. And I found that they had a different, they had a different set of rules. And that's when I started following that. And I really felt this sense of, uh, that there were certain incentives, uh, for saying certain things and incentives for not saying certain other things. And it was, at that point, it was really easy to follow for me. So, um, I, I, just went with it, went with the flow and followed the rules. And eventually it came to a point where I had, you know, what, what you would call a, a persona, right? I had a character. I had a cartoon profile picture. I had a certain way of tweeting and a certain way of, of communicating with people that people liked. And I knew what people liked and what people didn't like. And, um, uh, one of the reasons for for going on my break was i i i was really um uh, a bit uncomfortable about this character. It felt like I was very uh clearly playing a certain character that was not entirely who I usually am in real life and by the way i I forgot what your question was again
0: I, I mean i'm just going i don't remember exactly what my question is I think it was mostly about um how we know what we're optimizing. Uh right. I think this is like a beautiful narrativization about these rules. And I guess the um the thing I want to ask you is well, so we have this concept we've been working with which we did not invent, but we're kind of mm-hmm. generalizing called anti-inductivity. anti mm-hmm. Anti-inductivity is this idea which I don't think is actually very well defined in the literature. The way we define it is it's when you play a move in a game and by playing it, you basically allow people to kind of price your move in. So it's not as effective. So like the stock market is highly anti-inductive because if you buy a lot of a stock, other people know you're valuing it highly and they're going to try to buy it because the price is going up, right? And that's how the price goes up in the first place. So it's really, really anti-inductive in comparison to other games. But but many games, in fact, I would say most games people tend to play are anti-inductive because that's kind of what makes it fun because you can't just learn the one way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Um So in a lot of um, Go, like puzzles, you know, like chess puzzles where you're like, what's the next move? Um, A lot of times the way you do it is you think, what would the other person want their next move to be if I didn't move now? Um, And that to me is a a perfect example of kind of anti-inductive thinking. And one thing I wonder about is you talk about these rules and how in some sense, like your... locally optimizing these rules and just figuring them out and that's how you kind of like learn what to optimize Um, and i really empathize with that i have this piece called like my struggle with literalism and literalism Mm -hmm. is what i call what like i think almost exactly what you're experiencing that i have no like i i don't perceive myself as understanding social rules without being able to explicitly describe them i don't just go with the flow it's very difficult for me in that sense right um but i think what happens also is that when rules become activated too much they start dying right and this is what happens mm-hmm. with memes right when people use memes for every certain thing like and they just like oh i can just stuff this meme in it becomes uncool to use that meme there's somehow like less information being transferred less surprise and mm-hmm. it, it is kind of selected against um so yeah I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on on that process because i think i very much agree with you that what you're describing to me i would i would kind of summarize as we learn how to optimize by finding a bunch of local rules, and then figuring out a strategy to try to optimize them in combination as best we can. Um, and then I, my question is, like, what makes rules die? Um, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. And also, I guess, uh, suspended, I'm sorry, I've been uh, totally uh, hogging the mic. Um, feel free to jump in also and, and, and ask your own things.
2: Well, I guess what I'd say really quick is that it seems like what... Uh... Amir's story kind of tells the, the original question was, you know, what are we optimizing for? Um, and his story is, you know, uh, I didn't follow the rules and I, you know, felt like shit and I got treated like shit. And then I started following the rules and things got better for me. Um, I think that, uh, you know, is kind of a summation of, of what people are optimizing for to some extent, which is getting treated well and um, the opportunities that come with getting treated well or being socially valued um, whether that's friendships or um, uh, yeah so i don't know that that's all i have to say
0: let me just tag one thing onto that which is um i do think there is this perception so me and um uh, spend have been trying to fight this idea that when we were strategic, like being strategic is fundamentally like Machiavellian or manipulative mm-hmm. in this, like mm-hmm. in this way. I don't think it is. And I think a perfect example of what, you know, both you were describing, Amir, and um, Suspend is describing here as a, at a meta level is, you know, so there's this, always this problem of sometimes you don't want to go out, but you're worried that if someone asks you to go out with some friends, then, uh, and you say, no, you won't get asked the next time, right? And that there's this kind of balance, and I think what's interesting there, I think this is a perfect example of where being strategic is totally not Machiavellian. That's similar to what you're describing, which is if you don't ask, get asked again, you're going to eventually feel lonely and feel like shit. Right. Um, but if they get rejected all the time, they're going to feel like shit too, right? And so like this just arises from the kind of communicative information being confounded, right? Like whether you're not going out with them because you don't want to or whether they're trying to feel out whether you're the kind of person who goes to the kind of things that um, you want to go out to. Um, And there is actual emotional cost on both sides, which ends up requiring both of you to be strategic without any of you saying, okay, I'm going to screw this person over. Because I just think most of the time, no one is trying to screw someone over. They're just trying not to feel like crap in the end.
1: Right. Because following rules is is, is mostly about giving people what they want. I think uh, when you manage to do this in a way that uh, they don't notice that you're fully conscious of what you're doing, it doesn't really matter uh, whether or not you are conscious. Most of the time, you know, people put, uh, take it as uh, an act of kindness, even. It's like when you are socially awkward, uh, there's a sort of uh, Social violation, or like a sort of violence that you're committing on other people that makes people feel really uncomfortable, and they really don't want you to do that. So, when you figure out the rules and follow them, uh, people like it, right? And they're gonna be, uh, they're gonna be nicer to you because they know that you can give them what they're looking for. Um, I'm not sure to what extent like people are uh, conscious of this, or like how many people are as uh i I, i've thought of it as sort of a sociopathic thing before like (laughs) if if you sort of uh boil down all the social interaction into certain rules and just things people like and to give them when they want it to make them be nice to you it seems really manipulative but you know usually uh, when we talk about manipulation in a bad sense what we mean is like uh is to use these uh techniques in a way that benefit us at the expense of someone else and you know you can there's there are ways of doing that in ways that don't uh hurt anyone and in fact actually it does the opposite you know makes everyone happier so um, about the the other thing about what, what are we what is engagement and and what kind of engagement is being optimized what are we optimizing for on Twitter? It's a really hard question. And I'm not sure even if there's any particular, you know, actual fundamental difference between what we're doing and what the rest of Twitter is doing, or like what politics Twitter is doing, or like what academic Twitter is doing. Probably whatever uh, can hold people's attention for a short amount of time would be good. And the way that we do that is a bit more low cost I would say we have a way of doing things that's very uh it's very uh low effort right I think the the, the cynical way of describing our corner of Twitter is like it's a very low effort way of, of of interacting with people because we we get to be very cozy and comfortable and have fun without having to you know pull the weight of actually thinking about stuff in a very serious capacity and that's what a lot of people are doing. But also, in some way, it's 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 a way of optimization, right? Because we don't have to get mad and 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 argue about the politics or argue about the current events, and we can just sort of have fun with almost none of the downsides. Um, there's it, it might feel fake to other people or for people that are not in the group, but for us who are in the group, it feels like a really easy way to just get this cheap uh, social value or social interaction when you feel like it.
0: There's a lot there. But one thing that I think connects the two sides of of what you're talking about is, um, you know, you talk about uh, following rules as a kind of kindness to people. And it seems, though, that one of the ways this is used as an emergent property of groups is that in order to identify the boundaries of groups, you basically try to make your social rules. I mean, you being like people collectively mm-hmm. um, orthogonal in very, or not even orthogonal, like very much perpendicular, right? Like, I mean, orthogonal is perpendicular, but I mean, really jutting against the other boundaries of other uh, social groups rules so that, someone following X person social group couldn't be mistaken for someone following Y person social group because they would have you know um be, been sure not to go out of a certain boundary or to go into a certain kind of crevice right um and this actually I think is um super related to something that uh, me and spenders have been talking about which is this idea that you mentioned you know you're not sure how Important intentionality is, and how, how much we can even really like think about how conscious people are about these things. Um, and we agree with that, uh, I think. I'm going to speak for suspended. Um, and I think our kind of uh, argument that we're developing is something that I call the historical frame, which is that the only way you can really make arguments about intentionality is to say, look, I have this track record of this person. And in the absence of some kind of intention vaguely in this direction, like a random walk would have gone all over the place here, and it just happened not to. And that's that means that there's some kind of force acting there. Now, we don't know what it is, necessarily. And so like saying, oh, it's because they wanted this is hard, because it could be that they want some confounding factor. Um, but I think what's interesting, and I'm curious if you agree, is that the rules of these different social groups, like politics, Twitter, like academic Twitter, like Whatever are you know in group whatever it is um and a lot of kind of uh you know different things that we've seen like recently I think what is it like BAP was um uh was banned or something or left I don't remember it's suspended I see um I'm obviously not <laughs> super hip um but I've you know I I experienced that and then I see all of these people in the comments who are clearly going by different rules um and I think that the reason why rules diverge in that way is because they evolve to basically be able to be used as identification. And I'm curious if you agree.
1: Mm -hmm. So you're saying that if uh, the rules are set in a way that following them would make you stand out, it's useful for growing the group and to, to create some kind of social cohesion between them?
0: Yes, and that specifically, you wouldn't want to be confused with a, especially a group that borders on similar things, right? So, um, for instance, right, I think there's a very strong pull that different political parties um, and different political movements have to have different stances on things if they don't want to be associated with each other. This is like a big pressure that often makes people take very strange um, political arguments because they don't want to be seen agreeing with someone that they consider an enemy. Right.
1: right. Hmm. I'm actually not sure uh, because uh, what I'm observing in our space is seems to be the opposite, which is like people are very deliberately uh, not, uh, they don't want to be seen as uh, members of a certain group or as a certain group that uh, would be too polarizing, I suppose. Um, we ha- We have these, this, this way of, of interacting that is very uh, it's a very roundabout way of interacting with people, I think. or at least I, I figure out a, a number of topics that people in our space just don't talk about or try really hard not to talk about to the extent that if a particular discussion was heading in that direction, like it would make people stop talking. I feel like there's uh, some kind of informal, uh, implicit agreement not to talk about certain things because doing that will make these fault lines very clear and would threaten the uh, I don't know, structural stability of the, of the social uh, connections between people. I'm not sure if you're seeing the same thing.
0: No, I totally do. And it's fascinating because I think we're interpreting it exactly opposite. And that makes this a fascinating thing to discuss. Because for me, that's a negative signal, right? Because there are lots of other people who are saying we have to talk about X and Y and Z, right? Issue. Um, and by refusing to comment, it's a much weaker signal because you don't you you don't know, oh, did they just not see this tweet? But over time, right? And this is like the, the kind of the point of the historical frame, over time you see that someone probably would have commented on that in the absence of some kind of implicit negotiation. Um, so To me, like I totally agree about this roundaboutness, and that's what's interesting. I feel like our general Twitter circle um, often communicates in these roundabout ways through negative signals because that allows for slightly more flexible structural cohesion, but that it's nonetheless a, a, a real rule that if you were to talk about these things all the time, lots of people would eventually unfollow you and not interact with you in the same way. And so that is still, in my view, an unorthogonal rule. It's just phrased in the negative.
1: Right. Hmm. But I'm not sure if we can define our circle as people who don't talk about things as, instead of people who talk about X and Y.
0: Wait, what hmm. do you mean by that precisely?
1: Like, could you then say that uh, our space is a collection of people who do not talk about so and so instead of a collection of people who like to talk about so and so so we are defined by our unwillingness to discuss certain topics instead of uh you know coordinating around a certain uh topic or our our subject
0: yeah uh, agreed and and i think and this gets me to something that i really want to bring up with you because it's like one of my favorite ideas of yours. Um, I think the way I view it is neither of those definitions will be very robust for describing this um, general, and I'll just call it in-group, even though it sounds so pretentious, and I don't okay. I don't really <laughs> admire that term, but everyone uses it, I guess we could handle. Um, uh, but I think I would say we tend to follow much more something that I've called m- meta-rules, which is at least that, like. The, the rules themselves don't have object level instantiations most of the time. I think there are some that people like really don't want to talk about, like some specific topics. But I think in general, it's mostly what is, the, like, what is the kind of way you're going to talk about topics is the kind of rule. And I think one of those things is there's an unwillingness to be unwilling in a conversation. People don't like very strong pushback. It's kind of like, oh, you shouldn't participate. That's going to be the kind of thing. And then... I think this actually makes people uncomfortable a lot of the time. And to then there's places where people like specifically allow pushback. Like, I really want to hear your opinion um, in order to kind of vent out the need for people to do that. Um, and I think this gets very deeply to your um, idea of the metagame and the idea that basically... Um, okay, I'm just going to read your tweet because you say it best. And I have in my notes that this is a GOAT, a greatest of all time. Actually, I'm just going to go with the greatest of all time. <laughs>
1: It's very kind of you
0: it's amazing educating the general public about the meta would break the existing meta because everyone will start using the now popular dominant strategy making it no longer dominant creating a brand new meta this is against the interest of those who are playing the current meta right. and i think that just summarizes a lot of the rules that like actually end up defining in-group, right? That one of the things is we're all trying not to change the current instantiation because that's actually going to be a lot of cognitive work. And so we're defined by how well we can kind of keep the meta together without um, actually like describing it.
1: Mm -hmm. We are so, I would just like to note that like our discussion is so far removed from the object level at this point that it's getting really hard for me to keep track of what we're actually talking about. It's really cool though that this is happening.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll just say that from my perspective, it sounds like you two are just aliens talking about a foreign planet, even though ostensibly I hang out in adjacent Twitter circles, um, which is a funny experience to be (laughs) part of these scenes and yet have a completely different, yeah.
1: Well, it would be maybe interesting to see uh, what, what you're thinking about all of this from a, you know, not really from the inside point of view.
2: I mean, I just, I don't understand Twitter and I've never been good at it. And I'm not sure whether there's something, you know, innate in the medium or I just spend less time in it than other people. Um, and that kind of prevents me getting this kind of Twitter brain effect that you've described. I mean, I don't know, Crispy, were you really vibing with that, that Twitter brain description earlier? Do you feel like you've felt similar effects or?
0: Yeah, I absolutely do. Um, and I think, you know, let's, let's bring this to the object level, but I, I think it's always difficult to bring this to the object level with the thing we're actually talking about because then people want to coordinate around actually presenting themselves. So let's take historical examples. Um, and I think um, kind of some classic historical examples of this would be, one thing I really struggled with is um, knowing about like various kinds of assumptions that different religious sects are founded on, right? So like this idea of like, calvinism for instance and like you already know um what like or god already knows where you're going um but the point is you can't act like uh you kind of know anything because someone who acted like oh they kind of know they're going to heaven is not going to heaven and like this kind of like weird mental load now i think what's interesting about that is we describe it that way now but when i try to empathize with that my understanding is that people kind of picked up these local rules about what it meant to act or not act like kind of one of the chosen. Um, or I think it's the elect. Um, Sorry, I'm not actually a scholar of religion. Um, And I think that I imagine is very, very similar, because it's also trying to define a group. It's trying to define a group that people claim at least not to be able to directly identify. But it's through these local rules that people believed that, you know, you could actually like kind of guess. And like, you know, people believed that, you know, uh, someone who was virtuous wouldn't get a lot of disease. So there were these actual explicit things that people thought were um, like related to this group identification. Um, So they were constantly kind of trying to act out these rules that were nowhere precisely specified, at least not most of them. Um, And that's how I see things happening um, now. And I think just like that, there's a metagame where if someone who's considered very virtuous in the community starts acting a different way, there is this kind of split where people have to decide: does this no longer make them virtuous, or does it mean that, like, we should all be doing this? Um, and I think that's like, I think that's a very clear expression of the metagame, right? Like, if it's something random, like if everyone um, uh, starts going on walks at six p.m. every day, um, is this a kind of indulgence, or is this actually something that's great and it's part of appreciating? Um, the beauty of God's earth, right? And you could really frame it either way. And I think it becomes this um, coordination problem that is exactly trying to figure out the pneumatic game.
1: Right. I have a funny story. Uh, So on the topic of religion, I'm not a religious scholar either, but I was raised uh, religious. I was raised Muslim. So at least I could talk from experience. Um, One of my first uh, big moments of going against religion was i had this question that nobody could answer or at least nobody around me which was that um you know we 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 are taught that god is all forgiving right so why don't you just do whatever you want and then like right when you're about to die ask for forgiveness why do you have to like always be virtuous and pious and, and and do all these prayers consistently when you could just go do all of the sins you want and then be forgiven afterwards because we're pretty much taught that any kind of sin can be forgiven if you're, you know, earnest enough and sincere enough in your, uh, in your, uh, prayers. Right. So I thought that if you're about to die, you could just ask for forgiveness. And of course you would be completely sincere because you're about to die. There's no way that, that it's not going to be the most, uh, sincere the most uh the it's gonna be the 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 most serious prayer you're ever gonna do right so it's it's very possible to just plan this out in advance and rationally you could do all the sins you want up to that point you know unless you you die by accident or whatever whatever but it's it's very it seems very plausible to be able to to plan this out and it seems like asking this question to people (laughs) would make them really uncomfortable or like they would object to the idea of asking the question in the first place so this is one of those things where talking about it out loud makes them it uh, makes it uh uh it, it you know it's something that we don't want to acknowledge and i'm not sure uh how much people actually uh think about this you know how much religious people actually think about this or if they think about it at all but um i grew up uh that's for some time, With the assumption that religious people, uh, who do bad things do it with this motivation, with this like assumption that they could just ask for forgiveness at the end. So it's like, it seems like there's a loophole that, um, you could use to do all the sins you want and then get to heaven anyways. But talking about the rule too much seems like a dirty thing. It seems like a sin to talk about this. So there's an incentive for people who have found this rule to never talk about it and then just go around and they could just do all the sins they want. Um, well, I'm not accusing religious people of doing this, but uh, it's it, it's an idea I, I had at one point.
2: This kind of reminds me of a couple ideas that I've seen you talk about on Twitter. Um one of them being that speaking the rules out loud changes the state of the game so you know obviously here um uh in theory you know were this a valid loophole and i think you know the way that these systems work you know it's very easy to kind of like explain away or close these loopholes in a way that um you know feels consistent enough um but like in theory you know if we're we're taking this premise seriously um as soon as you start raising the question and interrogating the rule, then ostensibly, you know, the the kind of r- religious ruling class is going to figure out a plug and change the rule or figure out a way to explain it away. And the rule, quote unquote, no longer works anymore. Um the other thing that uh, I'm reminded of is uh, you tweeted: any kind of extremely elaborate and semi internally consistent construct can be used to build very real structures whose primary function is to establish hierarchies by way of information asymmetry. Um, and you know we've we've kind of bounced around this uh, a lot in this in this chat, insofar as these kind of uh, rules that you need to know, um, where if you don't know these kinds of elaborate rules, often rules that are kind of inconsistent or have these incoherences, um, then uh, you can't hang and you'll be socially penalized. And I'm, I'm curious where that tweet came from or what you had in mind. And yeah, if you have any thoughts on all that.
1: Well, I suppose it was like an accumulation of all my life experiences. It was partly my experience with social interaction and romantic relationships, and uh, you know, trying to make friends on Twitter and all of that stuff. Uh, I think a more like simple way of putting uh, of of getting that across uh, that I, I, I that I've thought of since then was that the 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 social game is about figuring out the rules, or at least the win condition is figuring out the rules because the, the the information asymmetry is important. The way that you win is to know the rules and someone else doesn't know the rules, right? So the game is about figuring out what the rules are in the first place. And if you figure out the rules and tell everyone, that's going to uh, make you lose your advantage. <laughs> hmm. It's getting really recursive and weird. So uh, I think... Um, the way to, uh the way that I've been seeing social games or, or social interactions in general is that some people know something that I don't, and because of that, they can interact in ways that are uh, that make them have more social value. And so, what I needed to do was to figure out what they were doing, that, and what rules they were following, to give them that advantage. And once I figured that out, I found that if I followed those rules and if I put that into practice, uh, I would see similar results, right? And I also figured out that if I try to tell everyone about these rules, then, you know, there would be other rules that came come up around that that would essentially nullify my original, you know, discovery. Uh, Yeah. This is really weird to talk about. Mm.
2: I I think that, you know, this, this point about information asymmetries is key because when you think about um, the difference in kind of the human signaling landscape versus the animal signaling landscape, um, one thing that we really have is this ability to quickly transmit and mutate um, and create information. Um, and if you think about, um, you know, why... Uh, why uh, you know there are certain clubs, let's say, uh, especially in Europe or, or major cities in the U.S., like um, yeah. club like Berghein, where they have a bouncer who is essentially screening people at the door based on how they're dressed, like what their vibe is. Um, right. And the question is like, so like, what kind of signaling is this? If you try and look at it through like a kind of like animal signaling framework, I mean, it's not like really indexical or costly. Like, what is actually going on? And and the real, um, I think, test is do you have the information to know how to dress and vibe the right way? And that's purely an information game. And so you're getting screened based on these information asymmetries alone. Right, right,
1: right. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. And that similar dynamic happens in most of social interaction, I think. I mean, the way that, uh, so when I just did this social event where I uh, went and got drunk, um, so Indonesia... I'm from Indonesia, and we have a thing where most people are Muslim and most people do not drink, right? So, um, when I showed them that I was a drinker, it really helped for getting them to like me. That was, uh, and, and, and I've, I've realized uh, that this was a really useful social tool since college. And basically, uh, that's also the reason that I smoke, actually. Uh, when I started smoking in high school, it became really easy for me to make friends. It became like super easy to make friends by just hanging out in places where people smoke, because there's this sort of special uh, understanding between us that, oh, you know, you're part of this special club just by doing it. Like it's like it's so easy to get in the club that I figured out that doing it was. Uh, a really easy way to gain social status right so these are like things that i did to sort of uh follow the rules and fit in and it worked really well tonight i would say but just and and so there were two of us right two new hires and i drank and smoked and the other guy didn't <laughs> it was so easy to just like get them to like me compared to how it was for the other guy. So that really uh, made an impression on me. And I, I, uh, yeah, yeah, that's all I should say about that.
0: What's interesting is that this is a case where I think it's just a bit more complicated than information asymmetry. And I think this is something that, um, especially people who spend a lot of time on the internet tend to forget, which is that I think you can. This is a little bit artificial, but you can kind of break the coordination down, um, especially coordinating a new group, into kind of two sets. One is where there's already kind of an intersecting factor for the new group you want to create, but a subset of the current group. Right. Um, and then you need to find a way to coordinate. Another way is that um, there's already a coordination factor and now you guys need to find commonalities that actually bring the group together. Um, and I think what's going on here is somewhere in between, right? Where at first you were saying, Oh, you know, I want to kind of like uh, be part of this group. So you adjusted your preferences. But now you kind of have these habits, right? I would I would be surprised yeah. if like in total absence of these things, you would just completely stop smoking and drinking ever. Um, and so they become coordinating factors that are already there. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the interesting things about information asymmetry, which is, again, it's not all Machiavellian. Rather, it actually constructs preferences. And once it constructs preferences, those are actually, those actually become a lot of the things that you're optimizing for. And I think you see this a lot with, um, at least in America, uh, I've seen all over the place, people coordinating around what kind of sports they like and changing the sports they like in order to be able to be friends with the right people and changing the people they like in order to be able to play the right sports and this being a constant
2: balancing act. It seems basically like what you're saying is that um, in kind of a William James um, sense, the, the habits come from the social incentives, but once the habits are there, they're sticky.
0: I think we're all saying here that
2: we do socially construct
0: taste, but that social construction doesn't mean we can choose what we like. What it does mean is that we can pay a price in order to eventually like something to some extent. But what that price is that we have to pay in order to force ourselves to develop a taste and how effective it is um, has a lot to do with our history of the tastes that we've already achieved thus far in our life. Right. And so it's unevenly right. distributed. It's harder for some people to become a smoker mm-hmm. or to become a drinker because of the taste that they've already had and because of lots of other random factors. Um, and I think this is a lot of what we end up seeing social coordination around, around. and I think this, for instance, is Mm -hmm. a large reason why people tend to not date, not to date out of their social class, because in order to establish new preferences for things, you have to pay this cost, but it's not clear which direction you should go, and different, like, different kind of subcultures are going to have different things that they are obsessed with, and you can't just have all of them. People kind of, like, like to in my opinion um say that uh or pretend right that right, oh right. you could just like everything yeah. and i just really fundamentally don't believe that's true
1: um this is something that uh i noticed when i went on my twitter break last month uh, which is that what i was doing was sort of uh, cutting myself off from my existing environment because i was mostly using twitter as social interaction right and i it was we were, we had a lockdown and I was at home for most of the time. I was, I was just staying at, in my room for months. And so, uh, most of my th- patterns of thought and patterns of behavior has become oriented around Twitter. And I have become the sort of person who likes interacting on Twitter because that's the only thing that I've been doing. Right. So habits and social incentives construct, uh, has, uh, it, it's to some degree has been building up the way that, uh, that my behavior and then uh, when I stopped using Twitter what I the one thing that I wanted to do was I wanted to see what would happen if I didn't have that so what would happen if I cut off my main source of social interaction my main source of thoughts uh, mm-hmm. and so removing, the incentives to behave the way that I once did. And what happened actually was that um, the thoughts that came started to become a lot more fuzzy. And uh, I think a lot of it was, I would characterize it as a sort of confusion and partly as a sort of boredom. Because when you don't have that environment to orient yourself towards You sort of uh, the energy, the social energy that was there uh, doesn't know where to go. So at first I was uh, on YouTube a lot. I watched a lot of YouTube videos just for low cost stimulation, And then eventually I uninstalled YouTube as well. And I started uh, just laying in bed and observing these thoughts. And it turns out that a lot of my thoughts uh, were a lot harder or became a lot harder to articulate. Than they once were, so because Twitter had this sort of force of uh, forcing me to process thoughts into words and words into tweets, I had very clear thoughts and very clear patterns of thought that I were, you know, you could ask me uh, what I was thinking about and I could tell you because I could tell you what I was planning on tweeting today or something like that. But when I stopped using Twitter. Uh, It came to a point where uh, I was just laying in bed and feelings were coming out and feelings and thoughts and they were coming out in a way that was very illegible. So by removing that environmental factor, uh, it really influenced the way that I was thinking and the way that I was behaving. And um, at one point, I just started doing a bunch of random stuff that I had not planned for. I started writing poetry uh, I started watching a lot of anime, stuff like that, that I had not uh, planned for or that I hadn't foreseen at all. I think uh, it's really hard to uh, orient yourself without that sort of environment. And yeah, I mean, that was part of the experiment, I suppose. So in that sense, it was productive. And that's really fascinating.
0: And it makes me um, wonder something. So am I correct? Because I think I've seen you reference this, that you're uh, in a committed relationship. How do you think the legibilizing process is different there? Because, you know, actually one of our first podcasts is about, um, it's called uh, Define the Relationship or Get the Fuck Out. Um, there's this idea that, you know, in very intimate relationships, there are certain things that either party decides you need to kind of define and that becomes the game, defining it. Um and that seems like in many ways, a very similar liberalizing process with also a very similar dynamics in which things change over time. And I'm curious how those compare in your mind, or if you don't even think about them the same way.
1: Right. So, uh, funny thing about my current relationship is that, uh, we had a very explicit way of figuring out what the nature of the relationship was in the beginning of it. So, um... The story was basically we, we've been friends for a few years. And at one point we decided to, uh, take it further from there. And, um, we decided that we had to have this sort of very clear, uh, set of, uh, rights and responsibilities of each party of like what we were looking for, what each of us were looking for in the relationship and what each of us were willing to give that sort of thing. And so, uh, obviously uh, over time that sort of got developed. But, uh, yeah, a lot of people have very unclear boundaries, right. And very unclear contracts about what the nature of the relationship is. Um, and I was, well, a few years ago, when I started this relationship, I was in a, I had this mindset that you have to be very, very explicit about, uh, about so- social relationships in general, about what you expect from other people because if you're not clear about them, you're going to have misunderstandings and you're going to have a bad time. So that's basically how that happened. And to be honest, I'm pretty uh, satisfied with that arrangement.
0: That's fascinating. And do you think, do you think that your, um, those rules and those agreements have basically stayed stable? Um, and like, does that have to do with how object level or meta level they were?
1: hmm hmm right i think at one point we had like a period of trying to set up more meta level rules like rules about the rules or like what kind of boundaries we want to have or like um uh, but eventually we set o- sort of settle upon this idea that uh it's okay to be unreasonable right and i think uh generally uh People are really, really unreasonable about their desires. If you uh, can figure it out, the things that people want are just outrageous in general. Uh, it's, it's not. Um, I'm not sure if I can think of, of think of any examples in particular, but people want really outrageous things, and so uh, social interaction is about managing those and coming to a compromise of these very reasonable uh, rules and, and, and expectations towards other people. But in my relationship uh, we sort of uh, tried to acknowledge the crazy thoughts and the, and the things that we wanted from each other that were maybe not fulfillable just so that we could look at it and decide what to do from there.
0: Absolutely. So a major goal of um, ours is basically we want to give better vocabulary for defining social dynamics. Because I have this hypothesis that one of the reasons we are stuck in certain kinds of games is because we can't explain ourselves. And I don't think we can ever explain ourselves fully. Mm -hmm. But I think there are examples in human history of us getting better at explaining things and those maintaining and kind of you build on them and you make a more complicated game on top, but you can still build more interesting things. And, you know, I think in a great example that, um, the, uh, I would, what should I call him? Maybe the, the, um, Malcolm Gladwell of social narrativization Yuval Harari, um, says, which I very much agree with is that, you know, a company is a kind of communicative construct, right? It doesn't do anything precisely. The people in it end up doing things. Um, but it's one of those very interesting communicative technologies where we already saw, you know, people working in groups. And that's what a company originally meant, right? And it would be like an you know, ex and sons. And because, like, they were working as a group and there was some kind of social unit that had understood rules that weren't written down anywhere. But then we decided to make a formal version of this, which doesn't completely capture that, but is now like this kind of useful vocabulary that we have formalized into law and that we can actually use to coordinate in non-legal senses um, because we understand how companies work. And I think we can do more with that. But I have this question, which is, like, so I guess my theory is that the way we can make vocabulary that lasts is by making sure that it doesn't rely, A, on object-level vocabulary enough that the game will just change around it, and B, that it's powerful enough that people who don't use it will be somehow memetically outcompeted, and so that it'll kind of solidify itself as, as like just a thing that people do. Um, And I think, you know, one example of this um, might be, oh, actually, here's two examples. One is um, the idea of BFFs, um, which I don't think is, like, just natural to people. Maybe, like, having favoritism is, but I think there's a very certain idea of BFFs that, like, is kind of this cultural thing in English um, that I think is winning, not because it's necessarily the best or because it's very natural, but because... Once someone has a BFF, if you want to be close to that someone, you're competing. And so there's this kind of sense that, like, people who use the idea of BFFs can mimetically outcompete in terms of intimacy, the people who don't. Um, And I think a very similar relationship that's more formalized for those who don't believe my BFF example would be a maid of honor or a best man. Right, where we've specifically made this formal thing, which is not really legal or, you know, it's it's written down probably somewhere, but it's not a real thing in terms of having any other effect other than a social one. Um, But again, the favoritism allows people to medically outcompete. So I'm curious if you, A, believe that that's enough, B, believe that this is impossible and that we'll just kind of get a treadmill of social vocabulary. Like, what do you think of this mission?
1: It's interesting that uh, both of your examples, uh are forms of uh, language that creates hierarchies or like picks out. You know, those are both words that pick out certain people as being above everyone else, right? Absolutely. And that's uh, sort of the force that makes it powerful, right? To have a BFF is that I I I pick you out of all of my friends because I believe that you are more valuable as a friend than all of my other friends, and it's important for the other friends to see this uh, hierarchy and to see that you are putting this person above everyone else. So, you know, if uh, we go back to my the the tweet you mentioned earlier, the the function of rules is to sort people into hierarchies in this fashion, and so terms like these would be probably uh, hmm. You know, if, if these kinds of terms become more powerful, I'm not sure what the non-BFFs would have to say about it. I wonder if they would be mad that other people have BFFs or like they are not someone else BFFs, something like that. And if, uh, you know, uh, usually people that voice out uh, complaints about injustices in society are the people that are on the short end of that stick, right? so they're going to try to make clear uh, the perceived unfairness of those rules in a way that undermines the, uh, the, the 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 strength of that term it could maybe make a world in which bffs are you know people who have bffs are of higher status than people who don't have them or People who are not BFFs would be very unsatisfied with that arrangement.
0: I uh, know, absolutely. I think this is, this. Is, you, you've hit the nail on the head. And I'll just uh, cite a little example from literature, which I think is the narrator um, falls in love with this person who doesn't want to basically specifically like love one person, right? Um, and not just like in this play sense, but she's like, I, I love everybody. Um, and he struggles with this as like many books kind of have this And A, I think that's kind of a status move. And I I think there is this, you can view it either way. I think one person can view it as, no, 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 they're kind of being equalizing. But I don't think there's a way to separate the equalizing from the fact that it's a status move to have someone want you and say you don't favor them. Um, The problem is it relies on someone already wanting you. And so it's only kind of a second level move in that sense. You can't just draw it out of nowhere. I think what's interesting is the way we tend to define these uh, these kind of status uh, things is by Um, what I might call artificial um, scarcity, right? So we, like, enforce, um, uh, you know, only having sex with certain people in order to kind of create this notion that it's special. Um, And, you know, you can say that that's natural to humans. I don't know if I even necessarily disagree, but it doesn't matter because the reality is you could be having sex with other people. And this kind of ends up one way or another constructing this um, specialness. Um, And I think uh, this actually comes up really interestingly in this book where you know, they're kind of end up in a very bad situation for the world. Um, and the narrator wants to have sex. And uh, this woman says back, oh, what a terrible time it would be to have a baby, though. Um, and they don't have contraception. And I think it's this, this is, to me, like the archetypal sign of games where, like, you want to do something to affirm hierarchy, but real concerns get in the way and people have preferences. And so it becomes about how much signal is about actually getting something you know specific done that appeals to your current taste. Like, I don't want to have a baby. Um, while also like reinforcing certain kinds of hierarchies and that people use both the hierarchy to get things done and use um, the uh, resources in order to uh, kind of create hierarchy.
1: Right. So the games are dependent on people sort of not admitting what they really want and just... Uh, doing these uh, social gestures to signal certain things to certain people without saying it out loud in a way that everyone would understand. What I'm not really sure about is, like, is it possible to get people to admit what they want to everyone in the sense of, like, have complete transparency over everyone's motivations? And, you know, not just motivations, like, feelings about where they are in the world in the sense of, of, of social status. Um, I feel that if we could do that, the whole game would fall apart. And if uh, you were unsatisfied with the status quo, that would be uh, whatever you're doing is probably related to trying to achieve that sort of outcome, right? People who point out injustices are trying to do that so that those injustices are not real anymore or like so that people do not coordinate around those hierarchies anymore. Right. Uh, so that's what we're trying to do, but I'm not sure if it's possible to get everyone to, you know, open their cards, so to speak, and to have that kind of transparency, you know, people like Ray, I think, are trying to do something like this in the sense that they, uh, you know, Ray talks a lot about, uh, just whatever you're doing is what you really want to do and that you should admit that or, sh- or be honest with yourself about what you want. Um, and he also talks about transparency a bunch of times about how like uh, institutions and people should be more transparent. And once it, that happens, some kind of revolution will take place, presumably that would just break down the social order it seems like if you're not satisfied or you feel injustice with the current system, that's what you should be doing. But I'm not sure if that's possible.
0: There's a lot there, and I shouldn't keep you for too long. But uh, there are at least there are at least two things I want to ask you about. One is so I can't find it um, right now, but uh, Ray does have this tweet that is. Um, By the way, this is me being as legible as um, as I can be. This is all I got, which makes me think that. Even if people really tried to bear themselves in the way you're describing, um, it would be impossible. That, like, fundamentally, I don't know if we have the cognitive processing ability to do that. Um, And two, uh, you quote this Aaron Nearing tweet, which I like, which is Imagine being so low status, you view the entirety of human sociality as a status game. Kind of these add up to me to the point that you are making, which is it's not really possible to lay this bare because laying it bare is a move about status and you're not escaping the game, right? You, you kind of, maybe it's framed that way, but you're really, you're really playing a move in the game, which has to do with um, what Spended likes to say, which is, um, uh, everyone's a player to a player, right? Like if you're playing a certain game and someone makes a move, then like maybe they're not playing that game, but, <laughs> but you are. And so you, you see them as a player in that game, making this move. Um, so I don't I don't want to have everyone um, just say everything they think. Rather, I think there are more complex tools that can make people stack things higher. Whereas right now, you know, if things change too much, basically the metagame just has to change and move on. You can't build up like too complex of a structure um, because it's just too difficult to coordinate. And I think my goal is actually to coordinate further. And I'm curious if you think that's still kind of too difficult or like if we saturated or like if you need more like actual like real technology um, in order to do that or what you think right. of that goal.
1: So actually, I, I, I'd like to ask you that question because, you know, you talk a lot in your blog about, about making things legible, right? You really value uh, understanding between people for things to be, for these rules to be sort of uh, unraveled in a way that everyone can see them. And if it is the case that doing this would change the rules or would modify them in a way that uh, might neutralize the original rules, then um, what are you trying to do exactly?
2: I just want to say really quick, that's such a predictable Aaron tweet, I'm sorry, that it's like it's like she's trying, she's basically pulling a status move by uh, pretending that she's above it um, you know, but in, in yeah. reality, like, she is right. just as much in the swamp there, and she's right. pulling the move while pretending she's not pulling the move in order to seem better than pulling the move. I That's all I'll say. Imagine being so
0: high status that you quote tweet. Imagine being so low status, you view the entirety of human sociality as a status game.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I totally get that. I mean... There are levels to this.
0: <laughs> uh, I think that's an amazing comment. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And yeah, I mean, I think this is what's so fun, right? Which is, we can't talk about this game without playing it. And that makes it very hard to talk about the game. But to your question, which I think is an excellent question, um, I think the point for me, let's take the, uh, the metaphor of seeing a mannequin wearing a dress in, um, a, a closed shop. So I can't go in the shop and look at it. Okay. So, uh, I think anybody who's been in a few shops will know that often what they do is they use, uh, clothes pins behind the mannequin to make the dress tight, right. To make you look what this would look on like the perfect body, even though like the dress isn't tailored for the mannequin, it probably won't be tailored for you unless you're in a very fancy shop. Um, and I think, what I would like. So basically, my contention is that, sure, we make these representations, but our ability to construct them is not arbitrarily precise or good. And our ability to to even know we're optimizing isn't arbitrarily precise. So we are still in this situation where people may be trying to tell you something and maybe trying to play a move, but they're constantly leaking information about lots of other stuff that like, you can say is like kind of optimized in certain ways. And it is because it's been selected for in their behavior, but it's not like it's like perfectly controlled and perfectly optimized because those optimization parameters change and they don't change fast enough, et cetera. I think one of the most interesting things that we can do, and I think there are more complicated things you can do, but the, the primary one is, can you teach people how to from the front of the mannequin outside the shop window, see the little creases in the dress where you're like, Oh, there's probably a clothespin pin on the other side of that. Um, because I don't think we'll be able to hide that. I don't think our closed pin technology for representations is that powerful. So we're always going to be, even if we're representing ourselves as something we want to be, revealing information about the strategy of our representations. And by doing that, I think we can just get, make the game more interesting.
1: Right. So you don't want to, it's not that you want people to stop playing their games they're, they're playing, but maybe people don't want to be playing the games that they're playing and maybe they, they, they want to play something else or that uh, there might be things that other things that they want to do. And so uh, making these things legible will allow people more freedom in playing the games in the way that they want, right? Something like that.
0: I think so. And I, and I think it also allows for more kinds of games because if this happens, I think some shops will shrug their heads And some shops will say, we should start seeing how um, uh, cheap it is to make a tailoring service because maybe we can make this closer to reality, right? There are different ways to make things happen. And once you kind of raise the price for one thing, um, you might be able to change the way people are thinking about the products they're selling.
1: So in the case of the mannequin, if it was possible to tell everyone that the, the clothes look really tight because there's a clothespin behind it, um what would the you know the, the the store management do then if they knew that everyone knew that there was a close pin behind the mannequin where you know the function of the clothespin in the first place was to fool everyone. They're not supposed to know that there's a there's a pin behind the, the, the thing that makes it really tight. Would it perhaps incentivize them to stop doing that? Or if this sort of charade will be kept up in a way that, you know, everyone's just playing this role, even though nobody's really fooled. Or maybe our current state of social interaction is sort of like that, in that everyone knows that, you know, we're not really presenting ourselves the way that we really are and that we're lying all of the time. But the point of being good at it is that, you know, when to uh, act as if people's lies are true or something like that.
2: I I also think I'll just quickly jump in and say that I think it's not quite that people are lying all the time, though that does happen and people lie. I think a lot of people get pretty socialized into quote-unquote honesty, but what that looks like instead is that they shift all their kind of strategic load onto their kind of curation of self. And how they kind of strategically conceptualize. Like, there's just a lot of ways to frame things verbally and ways to, like, kind of, you know, dress something up with words essentially. Um, And they're not quite lying. Um, They're just very selective and intentional in how they curate themselves in their public presentation. um, And that, in some sense, is good enough.
0: I totally agree. I'll bring it back to the games metaphor because I think this actually basically answers um, your question, Amir, which is that once people all know about the clothespins, what matters isn't exactly that they're there. It's how shops can distinguish themselves now. And some shops will take them out. And some shops will try to do an even better job. And some shops will offer tailoring services. And it'll become about what they can make the new game now that the old game is defunct. There's no longer any value to be kind of got out of it doing the same way. And I think you see this, I think actually now that I think about it, this might be a better example with um, the scandals around using Photoshop for, um, you know, magazine covers for fashion and saying, oh, that's not really what it it looked like. And you see uh, people leaning in on very different strategies. One, right, is the hashtag no filter strategy. And sometimes that looks like, oh, you know, whatever, we'll let it look like this. And sometimes hashtag no filter means we're going to spend 10x time finding the right light in the right place and the right angle in order to make it work. Um, and those are both, you know, that doesn't escape the game. Um, but I think what it does is it creates a kind of richer space from which you can do new things. And I think it's kind of important for there to constantly be these new things that we can select from otherwise like we don't get to have actually like our only kind of um our only kind of freedom is in selecting the kinds of things that we want to invest in with our attention in order to basically um have those memetically outcompete their competitors so i can invest in hashtag no filters that look at least to me like they didn't put in that much time um or i can invest in people who don't care and say yeah whatever we use photoshop this is just purely for the aesthetics of the magazine cover and what's interesting right is there? I can't actually measure the real underlying game because maybe I'm being fooled by the hashtag no filter people and they're A, maybe sh- doing really clever Photoshop or B, just taking an enormous amount of time to find the right angle and still not really representative, even though it doesn't use um, Photoshop. And I think that kind of gets to um, suspended idea of surrogation, which is I'm going to use some kind of marker for some underlying social value that I have but that marker has no guarantees. I just didn't invent it at a particular point because I think it's associated with the kind of thing that I want. And that marker will eventually become manipulated. But if I'm aware of the language of using markers, I think I can play the game with more savvy and basically have more selectional power.
1: Right. So, so when, when, when stores start figuring out you know, better ways to make clothes look pretty without using clothespins, at that point, there's going to be two categories of consumers, right? Those that uh, know about the pin things and, and, and those that don't. And then there's going to be a new category of, of those that know about the new trick and those that don't know about the new trick. And so the more that this game iterates, it seems that you're going to create a more complex hierarchy of people that know the tricks and people that don't know anything. And this is sort of the information asymmetry I was gesturing at with how that, you know, uh, with each uh, specific context, there's going to be a particular game that's being played. And uh, some games are more difficult than others. And so if you manage to figure it all out, you're going to be at the top of the the food chain, so to speak. And if you are completely ignorant, then you're going to be you're going to end up with with really ugly clothes because you're fooled by the clothespins,
2: right? Absolutely.
0: I think we should probably start wrapping it up, right. but suspended. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to uh, share?
2: I don't. I should correct the record that surrogation is not my idea, but rather just kind of an umbrella term that I've come up with for talking about many other people's observations. Um, it's really more information logistics than anything novel. Um, but that's a side point. No, I think it's been a good episode, uh, the Twitter episode really, um, which, you know, I'm glad, uh, we got to talk about it at some point in this podcast because it is such a part of the information ecosystem and, uh, the kind of subcultures that we move through. And it was great to have Amir on to chat about some of those dynamics. And I definitely learned a lot about, yeah, the kind of, the kind of Twitter brain stuff. And, and it was fun. It was fun seeing, uh, stuff from that perspective.
0: Yeah, strong agree. It was truly a pleasure. Um, and especially this last part uh, with this mannequin metaphor we ran with, I really enjoyed seeing what you did with it. And I, and I yeah, it was really fascinating. And just thank you for uh, giving us your thoughts.
1: Well, uh, thank you as well. It was a pleasure for me.